right where you're sitting now. Hi there, welcome to episode 54 of Sitting Now. I've had a bit of a break again, um, not a huge one this time, not f- five years, whatever it was last time, um, but we've been rejigging stuff behind the scenes. Um, Josh has decided to go and take over CCN, which is a show we used to do, um, so he's going to be kind of manning that from now on, and I'm going to be manning this show, because this has kind of always been my show, and so I'm going to have... A rotating cast, as it were, of co-hosts, and the co-host joining me today and for the next two episodes. This episode and the next episode is uh, Ulysses Black. How are you doing, sir? Hi, yeah. Hi. Hello. <laughs> this, you, you've been on the show before, haven't you? You've uh, co-hosted before, I think, a while ago. Yes. Oh, God. Yeah, many years ago, um, you had Antero Alley, the uh, para theatre. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Para theatrical, um, sort of shamanic theatre practitioner fascinating stuff yeah yeah it was interesting that was interesting but uh yes so this week um we are talking to a a true character of the occult in my opinion um (laughs) (laughs) um, one i've actually i can't believe we haven't had him on before he's kind of uh such an obvious guest for the show yet he we haven't had him on before um some of you might know him because he appeared recently in a I don't know, what would you call it? It's a documentary series, I guess, called Hellier. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's part of this new, this new wave of kind of investigative uh, explorations. A bit yeah. more sophisticated than uh, things like, well... Ghost Hunters. Some, <laughs> I, I wasn't going to mention it by that, but yes. <laughs> yeah, it's quite nicely put together. But anyway, yeah, Hellier's interesting. And um, it kind of jogged my memory of, of having this guest on today. It's uh, Alan H. Greenfield. Um, or, I don't, he said he doesn't like to be called Bishop Greenfield anymore. He likes something else. But yeah, let's just call him Alan Greenfield. I think that's a, a bit easier. Uh, Alan uh, wrote a amazing book called... Um, I've forgotten the name of the book. That's not good. Secret <laughs> Cipher of the UFO Nauts. That's it. He wrote a book called Secret Cipher of the UFO Nauts uh, and also Secret Cipher of the Men in Black. And now I think you can get it in a collection of the two, which is the version I've got now. Um uh, but yeah, he's a super interesting guy. Uh, he's kind of, he sort of sits somewhere between UFO research and occult research. And he's a former member of the ATO, as we'll find out in this episode. Uh, and not massively... He's got quite a lot to say on it. Yeah. <laughs> not, uh, not the biggest fan of the ATO anymore. Um, for those who don't know, ATO is Ordo Templi Orientis, which is a, a fraternal occult order. Um sort of popularised by one Alistair Crowley and yeah he's not a fan of it anymore (laughs) to say the least so um, what we did was uh, we it's quite a long interview so we're going to slice this into two episodes so uh, part one uh, we talk a lot about his experience in the ATO and uh, kind of I think we we sort of start to touch on how he became interested in the ciphers um, which is kind of one of his main areas of interest um, and then next week, I think we talk more about the UFO and Men in Black kind of side of things. And yet they kind of all bleed into each other anyway. Um, and and it, I find that really fascinating. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? It's, uh... Yeah, it's, uh, there's, there's definitely, I think, in, in the past with um, uh, the sort of origins of Fortiana, there was this sort of, you know, ghosts, Bigfoot, the Nessie, 
the occult would all be sort of bundled together. And then as people have really started investigating them, they sort of, sort of split out into its own sort of channels with just Bigfoot researchers just researching Bigfoot and occultists just, you know, keeping their research within occult spheres and ufologists just looking for nuts and bolts UFOs. And I think we've seen over the last... Well, I mean, to be fair, it has been sort of gradually happening over the last 30 years or so, but it's definitely accelerated a lot more in this century where we're beginning to see a convergence of these things again, where people are beginning to question whether actually there's a lot more interconnectedness between these sort of Fortean subjects. Uh, and Alan Greenfield is is a sort of... He's big into that idea, I think. Um, mm. And as we'll see, there's sort of behind the scenes of, or some of the more sort of high level, but uh, perhaps lesser known elements of occultism have already crossed into this sort of communication with non-human yeah. entities and so forth. And so I think Alan Greenfield, certainly with his influential book from the 90s, The uh, Secret Cipher of the UFO Noughts, really started sort of bringing these notions a bit more overtly into the occult world. Um, so, yeah, so fascinating getting the chance to actually talk to him about it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, one thing I've always noticed is there's there's always been a kind of snobbery, hasn't there, from the, in, especially in the occult community, of, of any kind of crossover of those worlds, definitely. I've, I've always, uh, you know, you, you talk to occultists and they're always like, oh, those UFO people, you know. It's, it's almost like it's like, I don't know. It's a strange... Uh... Yeah. I think you get this, there's a kind of, yeah, there's a kind of sort of elitism that, you know, our cause is better than your cause, maybe. I mean, uh, although that said, most of the people involved in it still maintain interests across the board. But um, certainly with the UFO kind of crossover, there's a sort of ufology has, when seen from the outside, has a sort of big load of sci-fi kind of baggage with it mm. um, and which that doesn't necessarily gel with the aesthetic of the occult world which has yeah. uh, got sort of traditions and robes and you know yeah. coloured sort of things but actually you know there does seem to be maybe two different sides of the same coin being looked at which is fascinating yeah definitely anyway let's uh, let's, uh, let's roll into that interview right now great Alan Greenfield, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate you giving us some of your time so early in the morning. Uh, this is my time of the day, for <laughs> I am a creature of the night. <laughs> Hear the sound of the wolves. <laughs> what music they make. <laughs> so Alan Greenfield, uh, part occultist, part vampire, then. Uh, I indulged that community for a while, but those are really, really effed up people, if you follow my uh, abbreviation. <laughs> yeah, so There's a local community uh, here in Atlanta, Georgia, USA, that uh, I, I spoke at one of their conventions, and it reminded me too much of science fiction fandom in its decline period. <laughs> there's one of the stars <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So tell us, how did you, um, what kind of got you into the occult and magic in general? What was, what was your, what was the jumping off board for you? It's a synchronicity thing and it probably, uh, in some sense explains why I have these, uh, uh, connected interests from, uh, cryptids to UFOs to, uh, NDEs to telepathy to uh, what have you? You know the whole the whole nine yards uh, or nine meters or whatever you Englishmen bought from the French. And you know when the metric system came back to Napoleon from his savants, he said something loosely translated from the French. What the hell is this? <laughs> and that's not just an anecdote, it is true. But, you know, we are the citadel of old school over here. <laughs> so, um, can you say citadel, boys and girls? Sure. <laughs> okay. At the same time, and I must say, I was pubescent at the time, and that may or may not have had an influence on it, I uh, read an article about the then National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, which was arguably a government front. I mean, everybody on the board uh, were uh, retired military people. The head of the board was the first head of the CIA. But, but at the time, it seemed, you know, they were in Washington at 1536 Connecticut Avenue, Washington, 60C. In fact, when I saw uh, um, the original version, not the, uh, the Saucer Lands in Washington, and it's almost documentary, and they have some of the newscasters of the time. Uh, anyway, uh, the point being that I feel that that was not the right organization to be a part of, and eventually uh, uh, the teen ufology movement, which was an outgrowth of Ray Palmer's Flying Saucers magazine because they had a free section you could advertise in. It turned out all the people who are still my friends, those who have survived for these many years, um, formed something that became dubbed by somebody the teen ufology movement. So we were all kids that were enthusiastic about it, but uh, I was interested in that. At the same time, same year, the uh, university books uh, came out with a series of uh, vintage books on the occult. That is to say, it was uh, uh, everything that wasn't nailed down by copyright, they published. And uh, some things that arguably were nailed down by copyright, but uh, obscure or the author was long dead or whatever. So I, I got an education in uh, a weight and uh, basically the whole nine yards of that. And uh, uh, at the same time, uh, I uh, 
got interested in Richard Shaver and the whole Shaver mystery, Shaver and Palmer, who I eventually got to know. So um, the only thing, the only thing in my range of current interests that wasn't there was the um, uh, the cipher that actually was found by some of your countrymen in the. Uh, on the grid page, as it's called, of the Book of the Law. Uh, it's Jim Lees and Carol Smith and Jake Strayton Kent, uh, who uh, told me he felt sort of left out when it migrated to America through the QBLH. And that's where I heard about it. But it was, you know, it was an occult thing. And I was uh, not too enthusiastic until I applied it to the weird names and planets that don't exist or allegedly don't exist in ufology. And it worked real well in terms of predicting UFO cases. So I thought, aha, maybe the occult implications are interesting, but this is also interesting because it's applicable uh, beyond uh, probability. Uh, to uh, inquiries about UFO-related things. At the same time, some of the stuff that came from the Mystic Arts Book Society, two books a month from university books, uh, were borderline parapsychological, so that motivated me to apply for membership in the Society for Psychical Research, uh, which meets regularly in London if you should ever get up there. And uh, uh, I mean, they're not what they were in their first generation, but what is, you know, <laughs> especially in the paranormal. Now it's those guys on TV. <gasps> it's a ghost. Yeah, yeah, that's a rat in the wall, buddy, you know, but uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, it's just uh, like a lot of other things been trivialized for the uh, the sweaty masses out there, the alleged sweaty masses. And uh, I've done some of those shows and I feel used. In fact, I felt like I should join the Screen Actors Guild because it's a show. You have a mark that you have to walk to. Sometimes you do stuff in reverse of the way it's shown. And they cut out really the interesting stuff. I mean, I mentioned running into Werner von Braun once and... Uh, I wanted to walk up to him and say, hi, I'm Jewish. What are you? <laughs> that was not our conversation, which lasted all 30 seconds. Um, uh, and that I, I mentioned that in passing in like a two and a half hour interview. I believe it was on Ancient Aliens, which oh, yeah. uh, they, you know, the one with the guy with the hair. <laughs> oh, it's it's. You think it's real? Yes, it's real. Ancient aliens. I mean, it just trivializes the numinous, which is an expression that um, uh, the original lodge master of Euless Lodge OTO, which I was uh, gradually uh, involved in under the impression that his seriousness and quasi-Masonic approach to things was and rational approach was uh, typical and it was not because at that time it was sort of the feudal period of the OTO. So there was one group in, 
in the region. And the next one would be in New Orleans, which is a fair to middling trip from here. So uh, I bought into his version until they made me a sheriff. I shot the sheriff. Um, and uh, which means I was a sovereign grand inspector general. And another synchronicity, um, a student of mine, um, and this is spanning, you know, a, a very substantial period of time, but it's all background to me now. That's not what I'm doing now. But uh, um, she works security for Delta Airlines immediately following 9-11. And she had this standby pass, uh, which if you stand around and wait for a flight, you can fly free just about anywhere. And that's what uh, inspectors are supposed to do. And so I got a good close look at what local bodies looked like. And uh, it was a less than desirable uh, scene. I even heard that Jake Stratton Kent is now the uh, quote national unquote grandmaster for the UK of the OTO. Uh, most of those national things don't meet the uh, basic documents but then jake is a good guy so hmm. i didn't know he was in the ota um i didn't but, either I, yeah. I, it may not be true and if it isn't i apologize to jake for for the sin of associating him with that tawdry <laughs> excuse for an occult organization so actually that's a good thing what was it Let's talk a bit about your OTO experience. Like, how did you? Um, what kind of uh, appealed to you about the OTO when you joined, and what was the? Um, you know, tell us a little bit about your your journey through through that order. Oh boy, that's a long story, <laughs> and we're talking about an organization that has a history of litigiousness. So, I'll put it this way: I didn't really joined for the first five years that I was involved. My wife at that time was a member of the Ulysses uh, camp, which was, you know, the smallest. I mean, I, you know this, but I don't know how your listeners, uh, you know, uh, uh, how much they know about it. But that's the smallest body, you know, the only one in, in Europe, when Crowley died, was uh, Gerald Gardner's uh, uh, body in London, which uh, arguably is the the real ancestor of the modern OTO. Uh, but you could say the same thing about Kenneth Grant, who I like a lot better than you know the the, the folks in the straight folks OTO. Straight is a word that means something different now. So the um, orthodox OTO. So I, um, I was asked through my wife to meet with the camp master and he proposed that I, uh, organize their, uh, Gnostic mass. And I said, uh, I've read it. Uh, I don't know how close it is to the written form, but, I don't have any problem with it as long as it's a mystery play and not an excuse for another goddamn religion. But uh, hey, <laughs> later 
<laughs> I had cause <laughs> to get some grief from that comment. But in any case, um, for about five years, I was not an initiate member of the OTO. I was the EGC guy and the greeter. And uh, <clears throat> at at the point where my marriage was about to break up um, <clears throat> due to Key West and cocaine, not mine, hers. But uh, in any case, um, she said, I wish you would join because I've just stayed a Minerva. That's the, I, I would say, the lowest initiation. And in fact, it really isn't regarded as part of the corporate OTO. It's... Uh, uh, if you don't like it, as long as you've paid your money, you can stay a Minerval forever. But if you if you stop paying, you mysteriously disappear from the list after a year. Actually, it's longer than a year because they're not great bookkeepers. But uh, um, in any case, she said, I have never had the uh, courage. That's not the word she used. But we'll use that word uh, to go on so unless you, you take Minerva too. And the way it was done back then at this uh, – uh, the lodge master, a.k.a. the baron of the local fiefdom, uh, because that's the way it was organized in those days, in the 1980s, in the end of the Grady McMurtry period um, – <clears throat> And I never say anything ill about the old drunk because he was in World War II. And I, uh, one product of COVID is it seems like the last of the World War II vets are dying off. And since I wouldn't be here were it not for them, I try to thank the old boys whenever I run into them. There's one or two that live in this building, or at least they did. I don't see them right now, but they are uh, – Various people, but nevertheless, I think that saved civilizations. The last war that uh, maybe the only one that was almost totally justified, given that war is an awful thing, uh, and there all wars are awful. But um, uh, at the end of the McMurtry era things started to change and I got a letter from the new guy, Bill Brees, uh, AKA Hymenaeus Beta. Uh, I think his pitch was he was going to make, uh, make it more like a corporation, which it was and is. Uh, so I call it the corporate OTO, which, uh, and things changed a lot over a long period of time. But he did send me a letter, a curious letter, making me a bishop within the EGC of the OTO. And I thought, does he not know that I'm not a member of the OTO? Well, the letter was, you know, ad vitam, so I figured uh, – I'll do the honorable thing and join and take the Minerva degree. The other guy was taking it at the same time, wore a swastika belt, and he was a card-carrying member of one or another of the Nazi parties that uh, you 
something well to the right of the Proud Boys. Mm. I hear the the seagulls agreeing with me. (laughs) (laughs) Signs and omens. (laughs) Shoot one down and let me look at its liver. (laughs) (laughs) They're protected, apparently, here in uh, Brighton. Uh, So are eagles, which have been reintroduced uh, rather successfully. So that's good. good. uh, I'm expecting the Mothman cases to uh, be on the rise anytime. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, they are on the rise, along with what what makes me think that there is something non-extraterrestrial but ultra-terrestrial, to use uh, John Keel's uh, coined term is that these things vary according to the times, and they're very, very different. Now it's, uh, they keep saying, dog-like upright being. And I'm, I'm, I'm reporting bunches of cases, all of them in America. No, no, there was one from Zimbabwe, uh, uh, and another one from Latin America. So it, it seems to be spreading of these upright canines and i said loop guru we're talking about werewolves apparently mm-hmm. and they do the same thing that the so-called bigfoot and yetis they appear they disappear and once in a while they're seen in association with a ufo sighting so somewhere along the way i moved far far away to a galaxy not of our own universe and just assumed that the ETH, the extraterrestrial hypothesis, was A, too narrow, B, unlikely, and C, more in accord with the um, some of the theories in theoretical physics, uh, particularly M-theory, which is the many worlds, uh, two variations of the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. And I think uh, if, if either of those is correct, then these things manifest from somewhere else, literally somewhere where the rules of physics as we understand it don't apply or any other of the natural order of things here in this universe. And they, I don't know whether it's intentional or not, don't profess to, but with some regularity they appear and they appear in different forms. So, you know, if it's... uh, Sorry, can I ask whether you think the uh, the different forms that both the sort of from the UFO side of things or from the demonological side of things, do you think these different forms are the result of human perception that we're not quite seeing them as they are, as it were, and so we're masking over it with uh, various different likenesses that we can relate to, or do you think they are projecting, as it were, the manifesting in these different forms? Both, I think, but it is certainly true, certainly true that uh, we are not hardwired for seeing something from another dimension. I, I don't know if you've ever read Edwin Abbott's uh, vintage book, uh, Flatland, but yeah, yeah uh, it, it's sort of like the Flatlanders looking at the Spherelander uh, uh, and trying to figure out what it looks like. Or if you're not familiar with that, uh, not you, but your audience, um, um, 
the blind men feeling different parts of the elephant and concluding different things, or Plato's cave. You know, there are, there are lots of examples of that. But we are a recent creature. Even if you look only at biology uh, in terms of the, the full length of time that the Earth has existed, we're about five minutes, you know, that we came down from the trees and stood upright in terms of uh, geological time. It's about less than a minute in terms of uh, universal time. It's not even a blip. So the notion that we would have evolved senses that are capable of seeing uh, some kind of manifestation from another universe when really we just uh, uh, kind of reduce down to our senses, not our minds. That's a different story and a more complicated one. But um, uh, to uh, to find things to eat, find, well, I won't say things to mate with, uh, to eat and not get eaten and to run away, as Monty Python would say, uh, when appropriate. That's what we're built for. And, you know, you can dress that up in terms of modern civilization, and we do have some things that allow us to extend the power of our uh, limited uh, senses to have some idea of what our our universe is like, but in fact, uh, until we uh, uh, put the Hubble and other observatories in orbit, we were never, was, there were speculations, but I mean, this is, you know, in uh, your lifetime, my lifetime, you know, the, uh, 20 years ago, they were teaching, well, we don't know if there really are planets around other stars. Now you can see them uh, without the uh, what passes for an atmosphere uh, in these troubled times um, from space in a, uh, uh, if they ever get the James Webb uh, uh, observatory into orbit, I think it will change the paradigm again. One of my favorite terms is paradigm shifts. I think we're in the midst of one. And uh, so we're able to expand things beyond our senses. But what we find is things that are totally inconsistent with the entire structure of modern physics. And either they resolve it in some conventional way or they're going to have to change uh, the basic rules because the universe doesn't do things that are predicted in the standard model of, uh, of, of what the cosmologists have been telling us for the last oh, 7,500 years. So um, uh, big change is probably coming unless it gets, you know, a few people burned at the stake, it may put it off for another generation. <laughs> Um, so where, whereabouts were you still in the ATO when you um, when you sort of discovered the cipher in the book of the law? Or you, did, or you you heard about the cipher in the book of the law? Can you talk a little bit about that? Like how 
how um how did that kind of come across your desk as it were um it it came in the form of uh the late uh tim coute who was part of the organization qblh uh which was uh idiosyncratic occult organization with uh, moderately close ties to Kenneth Grant's version of the OGO, as it was then described, uh, which I have more of an affinity for, actually, at least for the ideas. I don't know about the people. It uh, does draw some weird folks, but then so does the corporate OTO. So, so um, in any case, um, the head of that organization from the beginning in 1960 was W.W. Webb, uh, which I think, uh, <laughs> exactly. I, just as the internet was becoming accessible to the public, um, I, another synchronicity now that I think about it, uh, I uh, was, uh, 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 Tim Coute, who was a computer programming genius before his time, introduced me first to Webb and then uh, to the principles of the organization that used to have a magazine called Athelima, uh, which the OTO made them stop using because apparently that's a trademark of the corporate OTO. Um, so uh, he showed me the back issues of that and the British Journal of Ceremonial Magic, which was uh, Lee's and uh, Carol Smith and Jake Stratton Kent. I don't know when they exactly became involved in it, but uh, Lee's had discovered the cipher on a magical retreat, and somehow it migrated to a uh, Bill Webb, W. W. Webb, uh, in this country, and from him to the uh, rather small membership of QBLH. Small, but uh, for whatever it's worth, average IQ 160. I mean, it was, you know, the Mensa of weirdness. Stood, well, Mensa's pretty weird too. But in any case, um, uh, it was presented to me as a way of, uh, as the solution to the uh, mystery of what the secret code alluded to in Libera Vallegas um, was. And uh, Crowley was never able to figure it out, although he obviously tried because in the uh, handwritten original uh, version of Libera, you can see that there are corrections and little notes and the cover is very revealing when which you don't see very often, where he, where he says in 1906, it's a dated notation probably to himself. Uh, this is a great example of a uh, uh, automatic writing. And of course the story changed later, but it changed in a number of ways. It doesn't matter. The point is that the cipher was derived by using the diagonal line on the grid page. I don't know who drew the grid. I don't know if anybody really knows who drew the grid, but clearly somebody was trying to go use the letter substitutions. And uh, the, the, uh, the 
British Journal of Ceremonial Magic group, which I think they called their publication the Equinox. You know, that was before there were any copyright issues. Um, it um, it was applied by them and then by the QBLH entirely to occult questions related to Liberal and other Class A documents of the AA. And uh, that was fine. And uh, uh, Coutte uh, had developed on a mainframe computer back in the day, probably by night when his employers weren't looking, a, a program called Lexicon, which enabled you not to have to laboriously go. Uh, it's called the Azure Lidded Woman, uh, or it was. I think that term has sort of disappeared into history um, code because ALW are the first three letters. And if you count the space, count well the spaces between A and L and L and W, uh, it's 11 which is the number of magic, uh, as they say. And uh, you eventually get the whole alphabet. And it's, it's a very complicated thing, the way it was used in magical circles. But at the time, I was as secretary of a local OTO lodge. I got plenty of that from the, <clears throat> pardon me, from the OTO. And uh, not that. That's specifically the OTO. Went, Ooh, poo-poo, poo-poo. Yeah, well, poo-poo them. Um, I, uh, I got a copy of Lexicon, and at some point, uh, and I was a member of the OTO, I decided at random to apply it to some of the very strange names like Indrid Cold or uh, Orthon or whatever, that come up in UFO close encounter cases, uh, names of planets that perhaps don't exist, names of people that are not standard names <laughs> that you hear anywhere in the Western world or perhaps anywhere on the planet, this planet anyway. And uh, when I applied it, that was my contribution. That it was also uh, resulted in the publication of my first book um, uh, because Illuminate Press, I tried to float with them, with the late lamented Illumin Illuminate Press. I tried to float an autobiography and uh, the editor, the late Ron Bond said, uh, you can't do an autobiography but because you're not famous. Uh, and I said, but he said, pause, pause. But if you were to take the section on this cipher and expand it into a discussion of how it relates, not just to the occult, but to UFO stuff, I'll certainly publish it. And I said, okay. And he did. And <clears throat> Unlike some of the people that I have worked with, um, he was a traditional publisher, 
So he paid me a generous advance and was always paying royalties. And uh, he bought the second book. And then it happened. The Voice of Darkness occurred. Uh, I tell this story often on this side of the pond, but you may or may not have heard it. So stop me if you have. No, go for it. Okay. I was... uh, I don't remember what the reason was, but at that time, uh, Breeze was living uh, in a rented house in North Carolina. Uh, he didn't pay the rent, of course. The It was called the Parsonage, wherever he lived, uh, which is a double entendre, if you think about it, um, uh, from our mutual friend, Jack, who introduced him to Bertio and that whole school of magic and um, so I went up to visit him and, uh, uh, I had visited with him before we had a cordial relationship. In fact, we continue to have a cordial relationship after I ran afoul of the powers that be in U.S. Grand Lodge, uh, which was fine with me. And then eventually, you know, sort of like Republican senators in this country, uh, uh, Breeze joined the party line and they had a, a big purge. But he um, twice, I believe it was on different visits, um, one was at his home and he had criticized me for publishing too much on sex magic. He said, this stuff doesn't need to be revealed to the public. And that's a long way from Libra Oz and um, secrecy is the enemy of truth. But, you know, that's be that as it may. I just skated it because I I had no intention of not writing what I thought was useful to the public. And I was very careful about who I introduced that kind of notion too, because it was very powerful stuff. And, um, you know, if I were involved in nuclear fission, as my uncle Eugene was, I would be uh, circumspect about what I had to say about that. And boy, was he circumspect. But my, um, the pause was for me to drink a little of my tea. So my my elderly voice doesn't sound so damn elderly. <laughs> um, <clears throat> no, I don't have COVID. I never see anybody. How am I going to get it? <laughs> <laughs> um, so after the, the first half of what was intended to be Uh, One book was published as uh, Secret Cipher of the Euphonauts. Um, I wrote Secret Rituals of the Men in Black at the same time, but uh, I was – it had been accepted for publication by Illuminate as well. Well, a lot of the authors and the publisher at Illuminate got bumped off. Um, I say that because each was a suspicious circumstance. And when Illuminate went, um, my original uh, publisher was was gone. 
And I wasn't particularly worried about myself. I take pretty good care of uh, business, and I definitely don't, you know, live in fear of the men in black. If they came to my door, I'd say, over here, this is my special room, and lock them in the closet until I could get a witness. But uh, <laughs> I'm a pretty tough cookie. I mean, I was, a, <laughs> I was a street activist until I got too old to run away from the police. So. <laughs> There's a picture of me at the Ripley's Museum in Chicago standing in front of what was left of their Gerald Gardner exhibit because it, it during the Satan scare of the late 1980s, apparently they decided that their uh, skulls with candles in them and stuff was okay for the public, but not this witchcraft stuff. So I posed in front of a, you know, a big blow-up photo of Gardner and the Witch's Mill, and uh, the picture is standalone, but the truth is I was hiding from the Chicago cops who I was in Chicago for a rather well-known uh, event, and uh, my affinity group did not get in trouble. We carried clipboards and stuff, and we would hang out with the cops because people with clipboards are not radicals, there are people who take notes. I mean, uh, so, but after the uh, people dispersed, after the uh, march or whatever you want to call it, um, the Chicago cops are the worst, the worst. And uh, as soon as the media had gone away, they started busting heads and arresting people. And my affinity group just slowly dispersed. And I saw, oh, I've never been to this Ripley's Museum. I've been to the original in St. Petersburg. Uh, no, St. Augustine, Florida. Um, so I paid my admission and took a very long time going through the museum, <laughs> a couple of hours, and then I wandered back to our agreed-to meeting place, and as soon as we got there, the cops sat outside the parking lot. Apparently, the, they would have needed a warrant to come into a private parking lot, so we waited them out, threw certain things out of our bus, and just in case, and they eventually got bored and went to sleep or they left or their shift was over and we got the hell out of Dodge. Uh, <laughs> I couldn't do that now. I would probably be one of the people that the next day of the uh, conclave uh, uh, that was going on uh, of a very, very diverse group of people um, – was spent raising bail money for the hundred and some odd people who had gone to jail. So when I could no longer run from the cops, I have uh, acknowledged that my ideas are pretty much as they were. Um, but I am no longer a street activist. And uh, that, that by the way, started at the same time as all these other interests, but I don't integrate that. In any case, getting back to Breeze, um, so I'm up there and he's showing me some porn film that uh, uh, he said, doesn't this look like witchcraft? I said, that's an Alexandrian ritual. And 
he apparently didn't know what that was, so I just dropped it. Anyway, a while later came the lecture. The lecture was, you know, you don't really need to be writing these UFO books. I said, beg your pardon? He said, if you would switch to documenting Freda Rakad, you could be the archivist of the movement because you're the man who, God help me, it's true, saved the OTO in Atlanta. It's a quote from him, not from me. And uh, because it, after the original uh, Lodge Master <clears throat> became disillusioned, having worked his way up to the uh, fifth degree, which he went to one meeting of the uh, Electoral College, came back and slowly but surely he stopped doing OTO stuff. Never really complained, uh, just he was disillusioned. I don't know what happened, but I have some some idea because uh, it can be very disillusioning. I mean, I was never on the EC, but I uh, did monitor their meetings uh, occasionally. Uh, it was part of my job. And uh, what a interesting group of young ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Let's leave it at that. So he gives me this long rap about how it damaged my reputation to do books that that deal with UFOs and the occult. And at that time, there was only one book, but I, uh, the, the second one, uh, Secret, what was it called? The Secret Rituals of the Men in Black. That was when the first Men in Black movie came out. So that was the name I picked. It isn't really so much about the Men in Black, although that's in there, as a better explanation of how you can work with the cipher in terms of uh, both occult and UFO stuff. And uh, not content with that, the next time uh, I went up to visit him to try to con him, excuse me, not con him, to convince him to come to Atlanta and do an initiation uh, of a person that I felt uh, this was too high a level for me to do or for the uh, my successor is Lodge Master, who is a psycho and a dangerous one at that. Um, therefore, I shall not mention names of the guilty, not to protect <laughs> them, to protect moi. So, um, <clears throat> so on the way, um, he drove me back. I don't drive, so and in America that's treason. But he drove me back to Atlanta so he could do this initiation and so I could get out of, you know, his hair. While he was playing a jam session that he had done, a demo uh, cassette, I believe it was, that kind of dates this, of uh, him playing with Psychic TV, not exactly your mainstream rock and roll group, but, you know, we all have to be somewhere. He's telling me, uh, you have to stop doing this UFO stuff. Well, I'm a captive audience now. I'm in the Grandmaster's car, and we're riding past uh, Tallulah Gorge, which is uh, Georgia's uh, answer to the Grand Canyon. It's a really spooky and impressive place. Impressive by day, spooky by night. 
narrow road. Uh, and he goes into this thing about, well, the occult is getting respectable, but UFOs aren't. I know something about demographics and polling. And I thought, where is this guy living? What is he, where is he coming from? Because UFOs are widely accepted. I mean, it's not a majority view, certainly not among scientists, but it's certainly better thought of than the occult, which is generally in, in the general public, at least in this country, according to the Gallup poll and others that uh, uh, is associated with satanic rituals and lurid stuff that almost makes you want to join the groups that don't exist. <laughs> so he's saying all this to me. And the kicker when we got to, ironically, the QBLH house, which is where I was living at the time, he stops the car, but doesn't want me to get out. And he said, you know, for publishing that book, you lost a Grand Lodge office. And in my head, I thought, I'm going to put off publishing the second book. I can buy back the advance that I got and uh, just put it off until I decide what to do. But I really am not part of, of a philosophical organization dedicated to illumination and freedom as I thought I was, because this guy is just basically telling me stuff that violates all of the principles involved there. So, uh, I, by the way, I still got the Grand Lodge job. And somewhere 10 years later, I was still a member. In fact, I was a rather high-level member at that point. Um, I was done with the OTO long before we got at loggerheads. Um, um, I just didn't say anything in public. And when I said something on my website, I expected them to throw me out. They didn't. Um, instead, they waited for this general purge. But I, I was done with them a long time before that. I mean, I spent 10 years really being in the OTO and 10 years getting out of the OTO. Because, in my opinion, it's a cult, like a lot of other cults. And uh, cults, uh, as somebody said in an expose of a very different cult, although they do some of the same things, like uh, the brand, as they call it in the uh, fifth degree, and a lot of uh, sexual la-la going on that has nothing to do with magic. Well, it may have something to do with magic, but the... It's more like a uh, swingers club. And my argument about that was, if you wanted to join a swingers club, I, I happen to know where such things are available right here in Hotlanta. So, you know, so I thought Breeze was being ridiculous. And if you see the overlong foot, footnote in the back of the, the com combined newer edition of the complete secret cipher, the Euphonauts, which is a new introduction and the two books combined, which is what they were supposed to be originally. I have a long footnote that basically 
argues with Bill Breeze and others who think like him without mentioning names. Whoops, I just mentioned his name. I meant Hymenaeus Beta, which is a somewhat amusing uh, magical name. Uh, did I answer your question? <laughs> do you remember your question? <laughs> yeah, I do. Um, one thing I've, I'm really interested in is um, in in because I've got the complete secret site for the Euphonauts, and there's a really good section. Uh, I think it's in the original as well. There's a really good section where you talk about Frater a card rather. Um, oh, I'm, I, yeah. I for, I'm sorry, but I forgot an important thing: okay. the bride. I'll call it the bribe, but that's sort of in quotes, sort of. He said uh, the first time he critiqued me in his uh, rented home in North Carolina, uh, he said, you know, you don't need to be doing this. Um, I could give you tons of material uh, that Freder Akkad wrote that has never been published, and you could make a whole career out of uh, Frater Akkad's material because none of it is copyrighted, which turned out uh, Akkad's son is legal heir. And uh, when I published some of the stuff, because he eventually gave it to me anyway, but I mean, he literally right then and there called, I can't remember if it was New Falcon or Red Wheel, the, the thing that... Uh, the publisher, major publisher that uh, was associated with Samuel Weiser, a bookstore, a famous, when I first encountered them in the early 1960s, they still had copies of the original 10-volume, first volume of the Equinox for sale at modest cost, long before they reprinted it at not so modest cost, and even some medieval uh, magical grimoires that... Uh, 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 in the original, you know, they were they were original documents. They weren't reprints or translations or anything else. Also for relatively modest uh, fees. Then later, when uh, Rigardi wrote his uh, "Eye in the Triangle" and the late '60s were what they were, um, they no longer had any of that. that stuff was bought up um, uh, long since. But um, uh, where was I going with that? Senior moment. Bomp, 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 bomp. Mm -hmm. Wait <laughs> Yes, he offered me the keys to the kingdom if I'd stop doing UFO stuff and devote myself to Freder Akkad with the phrase... You could be the uh, the biographer of the movement. Okay, yeah, hmm. that's interesting. Can I have the Akkad material? I want to go home now. I mean, it was just <laughs> that kind of thing, you know. I, uh, and he said, "Okay, well, you come back up here, and I will let you uh, while I go out for groceries." He does that a lot went out for groceries a whole lot. I don't know what that was all about. Um, <laughs> and, I, and I don't know how he defined groceries, but uh, he always came back with big bags, bags of stuff in this little town in North Carolina. Um, 
so he calls either New Falcon or Red Wheel and talks to them about, we've got this guy and he's really smart and he knows the, uh, the occult stuff backwards and forwards and he would like to do a book on Freighter Akata. Really? As I'm sitting there. I mean, this is, I, I don't even know if he was really talking to anybody. <laughs> but Okay, we've got the deal and don't worry because if they won't publish it, New Falcon will publish anything I ask them to. Okay, well, that's very interesting. Uh, by the way, I wrote a sequel. A sequel to the UFO book? <laughs> you can't. Okay, I'll, I'll shelve it for a while. Ten years until I didn't give a damn what Bill Breeze or any of the OTO people thought of it. Because who cares what cultists and dogmatic people think about what I do? It was favorably reviewed. It did very well, but it didn't do what I wanted it to do until like two years ago. I thought I'd get this out there and people would be using the, the tools that I gave them in both books to um, ascertain the reality to the extent that we can know it underlying both occultism, UFOs, cryptids. Why are cryptids called Bigfoot? It's a ludicrous term, and yet very serious people use that term. They could say Yeti or even Abominable Snowman or Sasquatch, which is the Canadian uh, native term. Uh, but they tend to go with Bigfoot, which... Sounds like some people I know with large shoes. You know, I mean, it just, it, it's not good PR. Um, but I got all of that ACOD material. I published it in a newsletter by another guy that ran afoul of the OTO for other reasons. Uh, and from the opposite end of the spectrum, he wanted to make it tougher and more militant. So... Um, and I, at the time I wrote my relatively well-known in those circles, uh, statement on the OTO, which politely, without any personal stuff, said the current leadership of the OTO has failed to initiate to the highest degrees and has failed really to grow the organization, which professes to be an organization for world change so they really need to step down well that was the wrong thing to say so um that they continue to let me initiate even though i had resigned the summer before before i published it and had tried to have a conversation with the u.s grandmaster general dave scriven who i was very friendly with as long as i played ball or was perceived to be playing ball with them. Uh, it was something that he said, actually, that uh, I was quit long before I left to borrow a, uh, to misquote a line from Blade Runner. And um, 
I was quits when I came in, and I'm quits now. Um, I don't know why I stayed. I guess that's what is cultic. And I think I hope to say something from the vantage point of as high a degree as I could reach, which was the case. And um, that's, that's basically the story. I mean, there's lots of other things. When I was uh, a grand inspector general, oh, the year that we parted company, they had sent me three different certificates. They're all on my old website, uh, which has been updated by uh, Tao Michelle, a local uh, close associate of mine. Um, so it, it's, it's a 21st century site now, whereas back in the 90s, it had every bell and whistle that you could find on the internet, you know, flashing lights and stuff. But it's been up now for 20 20 some odd years. Um, I just was done with it. And I really felt, I mean, my job, which made me dues exempt, one of the little secrets of the upper degrees. Um, <clears throat> if you have a job, you're dues exempt. Whereas there's a listed fee that gets progressively more ridiculous, annual and initiation. Um, I don't want to spend all of your time on the OTO because I've been out of that for a dozen years now. And um, I know similar stories from other people all around the world. And <clears throat> I view the period that I was in as illuminating, but not the way they meant for it to be. Um, and those who stick with it, um, they're, um, they're being conned and manipulated and sometimes abused, sometimes sexually abused. Um, so there's, there's a lot of bad juju going on, at least here. I don't know about in Britain or anywhere else. Well, I do know about uh, associates in Eastern Europe who describe uh, similar situations and who also got purged at the same time I, I did. And we're back. He's quite a guy, isn't he, uh, Mr. Greenfield? He he, uh, he he likes he he, uh, he he's a talker. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is good. No, which is gold for us because uh, we love talkers on the show. There's nothing worse than a uh, someone that's very uh, monosyllabic, as it were, on the, as a guest on a podcast. So it's great, and he's a, I, f I find him genuinely really really funny as well. His, yeah, um, he's got he's got a very wry, cheeky humour, hasn't he? Um, yeah. <laughs> but and also, and yeah, there's you know stacks of kind of fascinating anecdotes, and even as well versed as uh, some of us might be in our uh, occult history and our modern occult history, um, that 
you know, there's he obviously knows all the people of a certain era that I'm there going, I don't have the faintest idea who that who that person is. <laughs> oh, I know who that one is. And so <laughs> but uh, I don't think we even uh, scratched the surface, really, did we? No, no. I think I mean we've got another episode to go, and even in that, I think we we only barely scratched the surface. So I think uh, Mr. Greenfield's going to be someone we're going to be having on a fair bit on this show. But <laughs> <laughs> that, would be, that would be great. I mean, there's yeah, there's yeah there is there's definitely some uh, some more really good stuff in the uh, in the second part of the interview yeah but uh, and yet there's still more bits that uh, <laughs> yeah we're lo- I'm looking back at our list of questions right now and it's like I think we did yeah. about five percent of them so uh, yeah it's uh, it's yeah he's, he's he's definitely a an interesting chap um anyway we so we so we'll be back next week with an episode and then hopefully the following week before christmas um oh no that is next week okay i'm get, i'm all out of sync here so we'll probably be back the week after christmas then um hopefully with some more occult goodness so uh, but thanks for coming on board for this one at ulysses oh thank you for having me yeah i'm sure we'll have you on a bit more because it's uh you know, uh, especially for our more occult um, leaning episodes, I think um, it's definitely good to have you on board. Yeah, I mean, it's great. Happy to happy to be involved. Excellent. Anyway, we'll see you all next week for part two of the Alan Greenfield episode. See you later. <laughs>